one of the key strategic ingredients going forward, I believe, is going to be the quality of the education you provide. Mm. And that will build your brand. Um, and once your brand starts to build, more students come. Once more students come, you have more money to reinvest in the brand um, and in the teaching. I don't mean reinvest in spending, you know, advertising. But if you can really be known as the school where I can go and, I'll, and I'm just going to be lit up by the learning experience, um, that word will get out. And by the way, it's online. So it can scale enormously in terms of the number of students you can attract um, to your school if you can get that uh, positive cycle going. Hello, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of Chelip, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about Chelip, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelip. Hello, everyone. I'm Melissa Morris-Holson, and I am your host for this episode of Ingenious You. I'm delighted to welcome, as our guest today, Bob Atkins, CEO of Gray Associates. Bob leads Gray in the development of its proprietary education industry databases and service offerings, including its systems for evaluating program markets, program economics, and curricular efficiency. He works with Gray's education clients, consulting to CEOs, chief academic officers, chief financial officers, and chief marketing officers on business strategy, pricing, location selection, and program strategy. His clients range from small trade schools to community colleges, public R1 universities, and national chains, including the University of Cincinnati, the Maricopa County Community College System, Baypath University, and Western Kentucky University. Bob led the design of the Program Evaluation System and Program Strategy Workshops. He's a published author whose articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Sales and Marketing Management, and other publications around the world. He received an MBA with honors from Harvard Business School and a BA, magna cum laude, from Harvard College. Bob, we are so pleased to have you as our guest today. I like to ask every guest who comes on the show about their career trajectory. So how does somebody 
who majored in history wind up as the CEO of a company like Gray Associates? What's what's your story? Well, you know, I uh, loved history. Um, I think it's wildly underestimated in terms of the value, whether you're going into education or business. Um, you know, you have to read very complicated material. You have to think it through. You have to write about it. Um, in a sense, you're doing a, a form of problem solving. Uh, but the world doesn't widely recognize that. So essentially, five years after graduation, I went back to business school. Um, and it was, you know, uh, a useful period of time for me to get figure out what I wanted to do. And I realized that I actually liked more academic work. I liked reading and writing and thinking. And uh, consulting seemed like a good fit. You know, I wanted to make some money, so academics wouldn't, wouldn't really work for me. Um, and consulting allows you to do all those things. Um, and, you know, make uh, and make a good living at the same time. So that, that worked for me. And I've really been in it ever since. I started out at Oliver Wyman. I was actually in their tech practice um, for some 17 years, helping uh, the, the big big tech guys and communications companies like AT&T figure out how to manage the deregulatory period they were going through. Um, left there in 2002 and started Gray. Took me a while to you know, did a bunch of projects before focusing in on higher ed. And uh, what really drew us to it was, uh, first of all, it was 2008 and everything else in the economy was crumbling, but ed was growing, as you may recall from that period, um, doing its usual thing during a recession. Hopefully that will happen in this recession as well, but I don't think we've seen that yet. Mm -hmm. um, so we started working, realized we liked the people, um, we liked the kind of work we were doing. And we liked the sense of mission of helping align students and academic programs with jobs out there. Um, and that became a big issue after 2008. And we've been working in and around that space ever since. So is that what you would describe as your niche or has it evolved from those, those early days? Well, we, our niche is um, offering the best available data, software, and facilitated consulting services to help colleges decide what academic programs, whether online or on ground, to start, stop, sustain, or grow. That's sort of us in a nutshell, the elevator pitch, if you will. Mm. So uh, we've got to have good data, and we have a lot of it, and we do a lot of work to curate that data and make it better. Um, we have built software platforms that bring it all together and allow people to use it efficiently and, um, you know, and make it easier to understand. Um, and then we've recognized that data is not enough. Uh, we had a few early projects where we tried to come in and use the data to tell clients what to do. And uh, as you might imagine in higher ed, um, that was pretty ugly. Mm -hmm. um, and so we realized that was not a smart way to approach um, this industry. And actually, in my opinion, sort of with the benefit of hindsight, not a great way to do it in most places. Um, there's always knowledge, um, in this case, of the faculty administration about what's going on in your market, what's going on in a particular program, what the regulators require, what the accreditors require, that you know we just can't know um, across 300 markets in the U.S. and 1,400 programs, um, even with the numbers. So we need that judgment um, from faculty and administrators. And frankly, the institution needs them to come together around the data in order for uh, the, the actions that they're going to take to be accepted and to be able to move forward. So... We now uh, bring data. We like to facilitate what we call data-informed decisions. Which is, you know, I, again, having been on the ground as a provost and as a faculty member, um, you know, the 
the data that you all bring to the table is is incredibly valuable. Um, and I want to come back to that in a minute because you you just said something that I I you know triggered um, a whole series of <laughs> of additional questions. But but back to your company uh, and your approach, wh what sets you apart from the other? Uh, organizations that are in your space or are you are you the only one doing what you're doing you know there are people who our competitors tear out in a number of different ways so there we used to see a fair number of kind of guys who did this or guys and gals who did this and they you know come in and help you analyze one program and they pull data from here and there and um you know that was their their thing and it took them a few weeks or more to do a program analysis, um, accessing really many of the same data sources we use now, uh, but not all the ones we use now. Uh, and you know that was kind of how it was done. Um, there was no large scale data analysis. You, no one could actually analyze the whole portfolio of programs that a college might offer because the amount of time required would have been overwhelming. Um, if you think about a couple weeks per program, if a school has 120 programs, you know, you're going to be at it for two solid years, by which time the data you used is going to be out of date. So uh, our first uh, concept, and we used to do that, by the way, we used to do one program at a time, and we realized we we're going back to the same data sets. So we automated all that and brought it in and um, basically built a data mashup. Um, so that's kind of what makes us different from the one-off guy is we've got all the data in hand. Um, it's automated. We can actually do a better program profile with more data in about a minute than an individual could do in two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because it's it's not that we're not accessing some of the same data, we've just automated it. And um, there is a lot of work that went into automating it and, and that's not obvious because in order to automate it, you have to clean it up. And that's when you find all the miscodes um, that colleges make with iPads data. So we have gone through iPads and recoded hundreds of programs to get things lined up correctly um, with the actual content of those programs. There's one school as an example that persistently codes um, auto mechanics as automobile engineers, they, you know, people who design cars. And, you know, we go through every year and we move them from auto engineers back to being auto mechanics because we know the institution, we know what they teach. And that's, that's a bit of that's kind of a big difference, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, if the first data is not right, you know, everything you do after that is kind of a problem, right? Um, and so that's one. You know, we did a lot of work on our own crosswalk um, between programs and jobs, and and that is a big messy area that people tend to overlook when they do this by hand. And I think we've done as good or better a job than any of our competitors in doing that crosswalk, which is terribly important. Um, so if you think about the problem, you've got 1,400 iPads programs on one side and you've got 700 occupation codes on the other and you've got to figure out which students are competing for which jobs and how many jobs there are and how many different programs are competing for those jobs. Um, so that's a very detailed process that took um, literally months of work to populate uh, that matrix. Um, so that's another kind of a work that we do in the background. Well, and but I... And I, I know from firsthand experience that, that another value you bring to the table is because you have so many clients, you have developed some perspectives about yeah. how to interpret the data, what it might mean for your particular institution that's based on something other than your own internal, um, internal perspective. 
Yeah, you get to know the programs themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, very deeply. We spent a year or two working on nursing, for example. And so in addition to just knowing what data is there, we also know a lot of the issues and the the, the need to get uh, board of nursing approval in every single state before you offer an online program. The issues around, you know, physical presence in a state and what that means and whether that, you know, triggers issues uh, when you have a nurse doing some sort of um, clinical practice in, in an area um, during her education and so forth and so on. So you, you do get deeper after a while. You get to know the programs themselves. Um, you hear from clients about the jobs their students really get. Um, and so that broadens our perspective. And actually, we often take that back and update the systems to reflect it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's part, you know, and we also learn a little bit about how to manage the room um, from one meeting to another, so that our processes become more effective as well. And um, that's and that's no small thing. So I'm I want to come back to that in a second. But let me return to you were uh, in your earlier comments. You were talking about uh, how uh, historically during recession periods, higher ed has done very very well, and mm-hmm. that we don't know if that's going to be the case um, now, uh, post-pandemic. Um, so I'm, I, I'm curious your perspective on what's happening right now in higher ed and whether you have any predictions you'd be willing to go out on a limb and make in terms of the fall most immediately um, and beyond. You know, I, I was thinking about this issue, and I think there's a really important concept that I arrived at very late in life, um, sadly, which is the phrase, I don't know. (laughs) And uh, it's a very difficult phrase to use. And we all read about the virus. I certainly do. I love to make predictions. Um, But we're dealing with something we've never dealt with before. And it's very difficult to accept the level of uncertainty that we have, the lack of control we have over how this is going to play out, how it's going to affect us. You know, one of our family members could get sick, even if they're very careful. Um, so we're not in control of the situation and we actually don't understand it very well. And none of us have ever been through it before. And the science is evolving. Um, we've only, the virus has only been in existence for a few months, really, not even a year yet. And it, and on top of that, it's mutating. Um, so just the facts about the virus are difficult to get your arms around. Um, so as we think about this, there are a few things we do know. Lots of states have infections. Masks and social distancing seem to make a big difference. You know, I was just reading an article today about Norway versus Sweden. Sweden now has more deaths and its economy slowed down just as much as the other uh, Nordic states that did um, tighten up. And they don't just have a few more deaths. They have like six to 10 times more deaths uh, than their neighbors. Um, the thing we've seen here is it's just rolling, right? It's not stopping. Um, and when we bring those students back to campus from all those states, including the ones where there's been an increase, you know, just rolling the dice. Um, I think we'll find some campuses figure out a way to deal with it. Um, They they just get it right, by the way, partly by chance. And um, we're going to see some others where there's severe outbreaks. Because remember, we're bringing together people who don't really like to obey rules (laughs) and who tend to think they're immortal um, and really, really want to get out and be with their friends, for which I can't blame them. This is normal. Right. But on the other hand, it, the, the virus isn't normal. And so that combination of stuff is going to mean some people are going to, some campuses, as I say, probably will get it right. And, and hopefully we can all learn from them. 
Others, it's going to be a real disaster. And um, or something else will happen that we haven't even anticipated. I mean, whoever thought um, the whole Black Lives Matter movement would come into this? And those are going to interact somehow. That's very hard to predict right now. So I think the biggest thing we have to accept going into the fall is we really don't know how it's going to play out. And oh, by the way, it almost is fall. (laughs) (laughs) This fall we're talking about is August 15th, right? Yes. Um, So uh, it's going to what we're going to find out is that we're going to learn how it, you know, what it turn how it turns out to work um, in about a month. Um, And uh, until it happens, we're just not going to know. Well, and, and let me push you a little bit further. And uh, if you don't want to answer that, that, that this is, that's fine. Because I think the, I think the answer I don't know is, is a very uh, common and appropriate answer to a lot of questions right now. But, um, you know, if you look at how higher ed has in fact rebounded during previous periods of recession and financial challenge, um, are there any indicators that you're seeing at all on the horizon that would suggest that even with the pandemic, um, for those institutions that are able to leverage online and pivot yep. in ways, I mean, it, is there any hope that you can look to or I, I didn't mean, I, Well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean to be hopeless, um, just uncertain. Um, and the, the importance of saying, I don't know, is not to throw up your hands. Um, it's to actually exactly to go out and get data so you can know and to watch your your neighbors so you can learn. So what are we seeing? Uh, You know, the data that we're seeing says online continues to grow. It's been growing for the last 10 years. So as we hear people talking and struggling with their uh, enrollment, you know, it's a little bit of a self-inflicted wound. Uh, There's been a way to grow. Um, It's been pretty clear since, I don't know, the mid uh, 2005 or so, where the growth was gonna be. Um, and many people have resisted. And, you know, fortunately, in a way, this virus has tipped all that over and pushed people online. So some of the resistance we had, you know, has just been steamrolled. Um, so people who take advantage of that and, and figure out how to do a good job online, um, I think, have, a, have an opportunity here. The competition is going to be fierce. First of all, it's been fierce for quite some time. You know, the University of Phoenix and Grand Canyon and um, uh, SNHU, these are not slouches when it comes to competing for students. Um, each of those has about, you know, over 100,000 students by now. So uh, they're enormous and they're, they can, they've been growing all along. And I have not heard that um, the pandemic has hurt them. Um, I haven't seen any numbers from them yet, but my guess is they're doing just fine. Um, so I do think online is going to continue to grow. There are going to be students who are uncomfortable going back to campus. And frankly, even the ones who do, what we're hearing is most campuses are going to be offering some sort of hybrid environment where some of the work is done in class and some of it's done online. The physical capacity of the campuses isn't sufficient. Um, once you you know have the number of students in a classroom um, because of social distancing, uh, you actually can't have everybody come to class all the time. So right. we're going to be in a hybridized environment. You know, here's a prediction for you. Um, I think one of the things that's missing right now that's going to become terribly important is assessing the quality of your online program. Mm. We, no choice of higher ed, had to back up a dump truck and pour all our programs online. Well, that's not exactly a design process. And so there's there's a mixed bag out there, right? Of yeah, things yeah. that, you know, professors who knew how to do it or people who just had an intuition and really did it right and people who did not. 
And it's going to be very, very important to for schools to get in there and figure out what's right, what's working and what's not um, so that they can fix the ones that are not as quickly as possible before yep. they damage their reputation, um, cause students to leave um, and go to another school. You know, everybody kind of, I think, cut the school some slack and the students, for that matter, last spring uh, when this was all happening and no one, you know, could be expected to be perfect. But that forgiveness is going to start to fade. And I think yep. I suspect it'll fade really fast. Yeah. Um, so coming up with ways to check what to check the quality of your online work is going to be very, very important. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely on that. I interviewed a panel of students who are enrolled at colleges around the country a few weeks ago, and that is exactly what they said to me. Um, not the not the same words, but they they clearly gave their institution slack in the spring. But when when I asked them what their hopes and dreams were for the fall, um, one of the students in particular use the words, I just want them to make the learning more intentional. And, mm -hmm. and by that, what she meant was don't just use Zoom um, to push your uh, in-class teaching through, uh, through right. that platform as if, you know, it, it's not a different way of teaching, but be very intentional. If you're going to teach online, if we're going to be studying online, um, then be intentional about the way you, you deliver the, the learning experience. And I thought that was pretty wise coming from a 20 year old. Yep. I agree. And, um, you know, we, I'm not aware that very many colleges are in a good position to assess quality yeah. um, or have ever really paid very much attention to the quality of instruction. Um, that's a harsh statement. I, I, by the way, this is not an area we work in, so sure. it, it could well be that they have been, and I just don't know. Um, but that's not really what I hear frequently. You know, there's a student assessment, um, that's done, which is one way of looking at it, but really robust, you know, sort of 360 degree assessment of the quality of learning that's taking place. I think it's fairly infrequent. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that too. Um, but I also, I, it, it strikes me that there's uh, a real opportunity for schools uh, to differentiate themselves in that space uh, now um, and if they can get the quality right and deliver something that is really robust and rich and personalized and all of those good things, that this, this time um, does provide an opportunity, even with the big giants that are already in the space. Well, you know, none of those giants are famous for teaching people well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to me, you think about the future here and brand is going to be increasingly important in higher education mm. brand is what people see on your resume and uh for whether they should or not undue weight is placed on it you know you see a harvard on on a resume and you know people think that you must be smart unless you went to harvard in which case you know there's some smart people and some not so smart people <laughs> who went there <laughs> some of whom turn out to be stunningly talented in some other non-traditional sort of brain way but um you know some of them just kind of got in who knows how um, so, you know, uh, and the ability to create a brand where the employment market recognizes it, students recognize it, um, I think is going to be, uh, you know, when, when you're trying to recruit online is absolutely essential. You know, you're, there's a little bit of a brand of toothpaste kind of thing going on here. And I don't want to demean higher ed in that way. One of the key strategic ingredients going forward, I believe is going to be the quality of the education you provide mm. and that will build your brand. 
Um, and once your brand starts to build, more students come. Once more students come, you have more money to reinvest in the brand um, and in the teaching. I don't mean reinvest in spending, you know, advertising. But if you can really be known as the school where I can go and, I'll, and I'm just going to be lit up by the learning experience, um, that word will get out. And by the way, it's online. So it can scale enormously in terms of the number of students you can attract um, to your school if you can get that uh, positive cycle going. Mm -hmm. So that's my commercial for actually worrying a lot about being a high quality or delivering a very high quality of education to your students. It's not something I see focused on. And I think it is an enormous opportunity for differentiation and one from which everybody will benefit. The school will get more students. One of the important things will happen is look, attrition will go down. Attrition is one of the most expensive things in higher ed. You spend all the money to get that student into the class and into your school, and then they leave. And you lose two, three, four years of revenue. So whether you do it out of the goodness of your heart or for the sake of your financials, um, getting this that particular thing right, I think, is incredibly important. Mm. Well, and that is a very positive. I that That's something you can hang your hat on and actually work at as an institution, which I think anything in this day and age, an era of uncertainty that you can um, hang on hang on to or hang your hat on is, right. is really important. Yeah. Let, let me more, add... Yeah, just to Go put ahead. a phrase on that, more students are going to come back to a better school. Yeah. And so if you if you wanted to take something that's actually very inexpensive to do, which is to monitor this stuff yeah. and invest in it, it is a dominant strategy in COVID. It's also a dominant strategy when COVID is over. Well, and it, it you know, you've, I know you've uh, read a lot about this notion um, that has been hyped a lot lately about uh, moving beyond this notion of higher ed as just a four year cycle but instead thinking about students over the course of their lifespan mm -hmm. um, and developing relationships with students so that they're always with you. Um, you know, maybe they're in and out undergrad, but then they come back, they stay with you for graduate, they stay with you for certificates. They really come to view their relationship with you in a very different way than just the, the limited four-year experience. And, um, that has, that has uh, relevance for what you're talking about too, because if you want to build customers, to use that word, in higher ed for the lifetime, quality is everything. You know, and so one of my clients said something that really uh, rang a bell for me. Um, you know, if you think about the sort of mindset about school to some extent, the stereotype when you're a kid is, I don't want to go, you know, why do I have to go to school today? You know, and that starts to fade for, you know, some people enjoy it right from the start. By the time you get to college, hopefully you've gotten over most of that. You're starting to really enjoy learning and enjoying your education. But um, I was trying to figure out how anybody ever gets through a doctoral program. <laughs> you know, eight years, especially online. And one of my clients said, look, what I want is for that time. And by the way, this is for working professionals. I want that time that they spend at, you know, taking our course to be the highlight of their day. And I thought... Now I get how you could do it for eight years. You're not getting through your program. You're looking forward to the time you spend getting educated. That, you know, it really is a fundamental shift in how you, it doesn't mean you're making the class easy, right? On the contrary, you, people enjoy what is a, you know, if in, intrinsic motivation is yeah. about having something difficult to do and mastering it. Mm. Um, 
And that idea that we can create an educational environment where that time spent getting educated is the high point of people's day, the high point of their lives, I think um, is an incredibly powerful way to think about this right now. And again, in an environment of such uncertainty, the classroom experience is actually a form of certainty. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind, with Baypath University, our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. Bob, you and your team work with um, many colleges and universities across the country. So I imagine you've developed some opinions and impressions about what you think schools are doing right, uh, as well as um, maybe some misgivings about things that you're seeing. Are there some specific things you can um, that you can mention in that regard for our listeners? Sure. And, you know, I, uh, we have a certain worldview, so it's going to my perception is going to come from that and from the kind of work we do from our with our clients. But um, I think you look back historically, people would say in higher ed decisions were often political or motivated by personalities, especially around academic programs. My guess is that was never true to the degree which people say. And oh, by the way, they said higher ed was slow to change. We fooled them in this transition uh, to adjust to COVID. Um, so, you know, what I'm seeing is a desire for data now that may not have existed before and a perception that data is, is accessible, which it now is. Um, so both faculty and administrators want to be, make more informed decisions about academic programs. And I suspect about everything else that's going on in higher ed, whether that's building AI systems to monitor indicators of um, potential attrition or you know using systems like ours to make program decisions. So. I think that trends towards data-informed decision-making is a very positive thing. Um, I think it's very important we keep that word informed in there and don't change it to data-driven. Uh, there's nothing about this at the end of the day that is formulaic um, and where you know we can turn on the uh, machine learning system and, and, and tell the school what program to offer. Uh, 
and very few decisions in higher ed are actually like that uh, in the sense that they're, they're deterministic. You can run the numbers and know exactly what to do. It's a very complicated environment. So um, you need judgment as well. I think on the downside, um, we used to do a lot of work in for-profits. We don't much anymore. Um, and, you know, we had clients that were a really mixed bag from very um, high ethics institutions that ran really good programs. Um, one of our clients, their average graduate earns more than the average college graduate by a fair stretch, actually. So, um, you know, and 90% of their graduates get, get jobs. So that's one extreme. And then you've got some opportunistic kinds of stuff happening at the other end. Um, and a lot of transitions into allegedly not-for-profit structures of people who are clearly operating as for-profit operators. And, you know, there's some, the downside of those places is pretty grim. And I think we've all seen the numbers on that where um, the best interest of the student, the best interest of all of us who pay for the federal student loans, really not kept at heart and a lot of harm is done. And by the way, much of that harm was done to minority communities um, who tended to be focused on by the less scrupulous for-profits. So um, students ended up with part of a degree or a degree that really didn't have much value. That's terribly disappointing when you run into it and um, happily out of all of the, not all for profits, but all the ones that I think of as not really being reputable. Um, so I think that side of it, I think we have to watch out for two things that are going on now. One is um, as we bring a little bit of business, you know, thinking and, you know, quantitative analysis to higher ed, what we don't want to do is turn everybody into a for profit and have them really think that way is about their fundamental mission. That's not what we're trying to accomplish. What we're trying to do is make sure we use the tools um, so that resources can be uh, used in a way that maximizes the mission, um, not displaces it. So we really have to keep that in mind. And one of the things like that, and this is a thing of mine as a history major, um, we often see this intense focus on jobs and this perception that there's a linear relationship between what you study and what you're going to do. So, you know, if you study something where there isn't obviously a job at the end, that that must be a waste of time. Mm. Um, and that can get run through higher ed in a very negative way uh, because there's more to higher ed than just, for example, vocational training so people can get a job. I mean, we are literally, uh, it is a, a kind of the cradle of our culture and how our culture gets transmitted from one generation to another, whether that's arts or sciences or history or engineering for that matter. So, um, We've got to we've got to keep that balance um, between the more vocational elements and not. And, you know, you hear I haven't heard it recently because people have been distracted with other things. But, you know, why do we need any more philosophy majors in the state of Florida? Well, first of all, my guess is the congressman who made that statement didn't actually know what philosophy was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as an example, part of a philosophy major is formal logic. I don't know if you've ever been exposed to formal logic. Um, I've only had the briefest brush with it, but man, is that nasty stuff. Um, <laughs> extremely difficult intellectually, mm. but it turns out very similar to the logic you need to do good software. So Google actually specifically hires philosophy graduates. So these uninformed views of what program leads to what or what has more utility really can do harm uh, to a system that has created the most uh, creative economy in the world. Um, and we've, we've got to be a little bit careful that we don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as we try to become more vocational, Europe's had that for years, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't see them as a hotbed of innovation. The question that you're asking, I think, is uh, what data do I need to look at in order to develop innovative programs, or at least a program new to my institution that has really good opportunities to grow? Yes. So let me take that apart. There are kind of two layers of this. And there's actually a first question you have to ask yourself before you even go down this path. Uh, one is that question is, how much risk can I afford to take as an institution? There are some sources you go to and programs you can come up with from those um, that are pretty cutting edge, but that cutting edge is unproven. And back to my, I don't know concept, you can get data about it, but you're never going to be fully comfortable that you've got the right answer. And in fact, around those really innovative programs, um, it's very difficult to know whether you've got the right answer or not. I'll give you an example, uh, quantum computing. Mm. To me, it's pretty clear that's going to be a big deal in the future. Um, the, there are physical quantum computers out there right now. Uh, you can rent time on a quantum computer. You could even buy one if you got a couple million dollars and a big space in your basement to keep something at not uh, two, minus 250 degrees Kelvin. Um, but it, it, even without that, you can timeshare. So this is something that's now available and it solves very complex problems. Um, you know, and you many of you may have seen the article where Google uh, achieved quantum dominance and its computer did something in, I think it was uh, three or five seconds that would have taken the quantum uh, regular computer 10,000 years. Um, so very cool, very exciting. And then you get to, well, can I, should I be teaching students how to code a quantum computer? And I believe the answer is yes, but I got to tell you, it's very hard to know when that's going to take off, when there'll be enough quantum computers out there uh, to keep a bunch of coders busy, which classes of problems lend themselves to quantum computing and how many of them are there and, you know, how many people need that solution and therefore will pay a software engineer to create it. You know, it's a whole ripple of, of things. So somebody's going to be the pioneer in that. Um, you know, I think if I were a state government, I'd be really interested in getting behind that um, so that I could have a center of excellence in a city in my state because you know, having 10 people in the same place who know how to do that is going to be a different, a competitive advantage. Um, those 10 will become 50 and 100. And and there'll be a, you'll now, a little bit like Cambridge um, is a hotbed for biotech because of, you know, studies that were going on at Harvard. There's an opportunity for that. But there's also a significant chance it just won't pan out anytime soon. Um, and certainly anybody who wanted to jump on the back of quantum computing 10 years ago had a long nine-year wait. Um so that's a question that if you want to learn about that kind of really cutting edge stuff, you go to one group of sources, you go to DARPA funding the defense advanced research projects. Um, you look at what venture capitals, venture capitalists are funding and that's, there's published data on all this stuff. Um, you read the general press and always remember the general press is there to hype things, not to give you a balanced view. Um, so it's not a bad place to start, but be careful. Um, there, you know, they'll, they'll tell you a great story about why it's going to be great. And then they'll write a story, you know, five years later about why it failed. Right. You know, in between, they're not going to give it a lot of coverage. So um, once you get past that kind of cutting edge stuff, uh, well, and there's then you get to some some things where it is more the general press, but there's a clear trend happening in the economy um, or in the legislature that's causing things, to, causing a program to come into existence. Um Marijuana, you know, um, cannabis programs are a good example. Uh, 
Right. There's been legalization of cannabis in, I can't remember how many states right now, like 20 states. Um, that is driving a multi-billion dollar industry. And so there's an opportunity to train students to participate in that industry. Assume you can wrap, you can sort of wrap your head around the abundant ethical issues associated with the space. Well, and what's, um, what's the program opportunity in a space like that? Is it cannabis management? Is it? You know, there are several. Um, so, and I'm going to tell you two different stories here. One is there are a group of things you have to uh, ha that need to be done in the cannabis industry. Um, you have to be able to grow it, and you're going to have to grow it indoors. So. There's a whole field there um, of botany and horticulture, uh, how to how to run a good greenhouse, how to control the aphids and, you know, how to get the light frequencies correct so that it grows just the way you want it to grow. Different frequencies cause it to bud versus grow greenery. Um, it's there's a lot of science involved um, in growing healthy plants indoors. Um, so that's one program. Uh, another aspect of it is business. And cannabis is a unique business structure because you can't uh, keep any of the stuff, any of your cash in a federal bank account. So you have issues there at a simple level. You've got very um, complicated rules about distribution, um, about retailing, uh, you know, and so forth. So, and, and by the way, that whole uh, regulatory structure is changing by the minute. Um, so that's, you know, a concept, a part of it. You know, there's a whole public relations spin Somebody wanted to put a cannabis shop on the beach um, in one of the northern beaches here in, in Boston. And there's a community furor over that. They don't want, you know, the building that sat empty for 20 years to be used for that purpose because it's near the beach. So, you know, there's a lot of complexity that's uh, in that space uh, now. And so therefore training uh, conceptually to address the uniqueness of marijuana as a business um, is a meaningful thing. But if I went back through that and said, well, couldn't I just take my course in horticulture or agriculture, you know, with an emphasis maybe on indoor, um, couldn't I have taken a course in the law? Couldn't I have gotten a law degree um, and so forth and get hired in the cannabis industry? The answer to that is yes, you could. And a lot of people did. And the job postings we're looking at right now are mostly for people with traditional academic program backgrounds. And yes, it might be helpful to have taken a course or two or three even a minor um, in some of these areas to understand unique aspects of the industry. Uh, but if I need to hire somebody that knows how to grow stuff, I could look at an agriculture program before I'd look at a uh, program focused on cannabis um, potentially. And I think many do. So that's a little bit of the puts and takes on that one. It's another example of these cutting edge things of needing to really dig in and make sure you understand um, all the different ways it could play out. Cause it could turn out that, you really don't need a cannabis degree. You just need a degree. Oh, another one is the science of actually extraction of um, chemical compounds from plants. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a whole area of science. Um, and uh, Northern Michigan launched what was essentially a covert uh, cannabis program um, by uh, focusing in on that area, which is also widely helpful in nutraceuticals and things like that. So... Um, that's the cutting edge. Then, then you get to more basic stuff. Cause if you're not going to take that kind of risk, um, then we come back to programs that are in traditional data sources. And when I say traditional data sources, one of the big ones is iPads, uh, the integrated post-secondary data system. Um, and, uh, you know, that's got every completion in the United States from every accredited 
four-year college that accepts uh, every accredited institution in the United States that accepts financial aid, which is pretty much everybody except for some of the fringe areas like cosmetology, where they do it on your credit card. So, you know, that is a good source. Um, we do a ton of work to clean iPads up um, because people do report incorrectly, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, one of the problems in iPads is online is not reported correctly. Um, for example, um, all University of Phoenix graduates appear to occur in Phoenix, some 30,000 of them. So if you're analyzing the addressable market for, say, psychology in Phoenix, you'd look at it and go, oh, my God, it's totally saturated because I've got, I'm making up a number here, you know, 5,000 graduates from the University of Phoenix in Phoenix. Well, those grads weren't in Phoenix. They were all over the country. So we had to do a bunch of work to clean that up. So just be aware if you're using that data set, um, you know, that, that there are some distortions caused, especially if you have a large online player in your local market. And you may be underestimating competition away from those markets because you're not usually going to see the online competitors in your local market because that's not where the data is reported. And we've, as I mentioned, gone through a lot of work and we've now cleaned that up. So really, by our estimates, only 5% of those 30,000 students at the University of Phoenix were in Phoenix. The rest were elsewhere in the country. So you need to, there's some work you need to do to make the data really right. So iPads is one. Um, you've got to look at BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is great for understanding the overall size of, a, uh, of employment. Um, the BLS trends data and forecasts. Well, trends, I think, are actually pretty good. The forecasts are really not very good. So um, it may be the only forecast available, but just don't put too much weight on it when you're trying to decide uh, what to grow or not. Um, we found that, uh, what was it, 50%, you know, 82% of those forecasts are off by 50% or more. So just, again, don't ignore it. But on the other hand, you know, if you're basing your entire case on the, I, the BLS growth rate, not a good idea. Um, what about the other the thing that's available on the late, one second. And, uh, what, about the, what about the competition? How do you get at? Well, that's really what you use iPads for. Um, okay. They're all in there. Um, and that's one of the best places to find out about it. Another thing that we've started tracking, you know, you can track once you've got a good sense of who the competition is, is brand search in your market. Go on Google and you can, uh, you may need to go to their API, but you can download data on how many brand searches there are by competitor in your market. And you can actually use Google Trends for that as well. So you can see who's actually in your market um, competing for students, um, especially for online. You can see it that way, but the on-ground shows up too. Um, and uh, by the way, on the jobs, the other thing you need are job postings. There are a number of sources for those. And frankly, you can just look at Indeed if you, you know, if you if you don't have the money to invest in somebody who's cleaned all the data up um, and see where the jobs are. So um, brand search is one way to know competition. iPads is another way to know competition. Um, the critical question when you get into that, though, is how much competition is too much? And for that, you need to do two things. One is bring in census data. So you can actually see what the volume of completions or competition is per capita in your community. And of course, once you know that, it's like, well, how high is bad uh, <laughs> in question? So what we like to do is look across um, a number of other cities. We keep track of 300. But you might take, just because of the complexity gathering the data, you might say, let's pick 10 or 15 and see how our completions per capita stack up with those other 15 markets. And you don't want to have you don't want to be playing too much in a market where you know your completions per capita are you know the highest of any city. Chances are that means you know you're you're, you're looking at saturation. By the way, 
if they're the highest because you have a whole lot of completions, that's terrific. You've, you know, you've, you own that market. Um, but if you're thinking of entering it, um, I would pause if, if it's indexing really high on that particular metric. Um, so a lot of Google also publishes a competition metric um, that you can look at. Um, and, it, you know, it's a zero to one scale. So they'll tell you how competitive your market is for recruiting students um, over the Internet. That doesn't necessarily mean online students. Okay. But, so. so so a lot of these data sources are are sources that anybody can can actually access sitting at their computer. Um, however, uh, I think the going back to your your approach, um, one of the the valuable things about uh, your service is that it pulls it all together, um, right? Into uh, and then and then you know your expertise in terms of helping to interpret what the data mean and all the nuances that go along with that. Yeah. And the other thing is um, when people, you can do this work effectively um, for one program by yourself. Uh, you can go get these sources. It's a lot of uh, research, but it's not unusually painful research and it's not terribly expensive either. Um, it takes a lot of time, but when you're done, you know, whether this, how this, what this program looks like, you have a problem. It, it could look good, uh, but without knowing what other programs look like, it's very difficult to interpret the data. And so the trap people fall into is they, they, they you know, the program recommendation gets all written up um, and somebody may even accept it. But what they don't know is they missed five other programs in their market that would have looked much, much better had they inspected them. Yeah. But the cost of doing, looking at all your options one at a time is prohibitive. Mm -hmm. um, once we automate it, though, we stack rank 1400 programs in a couple seconds, right? The computer doesn't care. Right. Um, and so uh, that is very helpful in making sure that when you if you're going to do deep analysis on an individual program, that you're analyzing the right one. Without that, you can end up with good and miss best. And the difference between good and best in this stuff is a multiple of 10 or 100. Mm. Um, so that. Yeah, no, and you're, you're also talking about a philosophy or an approach that has to do with um, looking at your programs as a portfolio, um, a portfolio approach to managing resources. Mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, I think that's an idea that's just now coming into the mainstream uh, for, for academic uh, leaders. Um, so I think that that certainly goes along with that. Let me let me just ask you one more question about programs, because I um, I know people are on the lookout for hot programs or, you know, something that uh, they can um, maybe get in on on the front end. You and I have talked about genetic counseling. You yep. know, and as you know, you know, Baypath um, was really ahead of the curve in bringing up the very first fully online genetic counseling master's degree in the world. And that has served us very, very well. But now, you know, I'm seeing a lot of programs, a lot of institutions follow us and jump in. So are, are there programs like that out there that you're seeing that, you know, that you think are the next hot, you mentioned one, the quantum, quantum yep. but is, is there anything else that would maybe be a, you know, maybe a more accessible program? Sure. Um, so uh, first, I, I can't stop myself from giving us a plug, but we we look at this every month on our monthly webinars. Yeah. Um, so we'll we'll share with you what you know is kind of hot right now. 
Um, always take them with a grain of salt because sometimes hot passes in a month. And uh, <laughs> true. So you keep an eye on it. It's a starting point for looking at something. It's not the end, ending of the analysis. Um, but some things we're seeing. So first, there are the emerging programs. I mentioned um, quantum computing is probably the furthest out there. Um, there are things like data science and artificial intelligence that are not yet, you know, they'll be in the next round of um, iPads, but they're not in it now. Those are huge programs. I think there's room for practically everybody to be teaching that. Um, you know, it's going to be like learning algebra uh, in terms of its, uh, that's, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but it, it will be very much like learning Excel in 10 years. It's a, it'll be a, become a requirement in the business community. Mm -hmm. There are tools that allow you to use it much like Excel that don't require coding in R and so forth. So that's kind of a game changer there. So I think that's a, 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 an area. I mentioned cannabis. Um, that's going to be a big program, I think. Um, and uh, another one, let's see, it's going out of my head right now. Um, oh, eSports. Um, uh, yep. You know, uh, whether you need a particular degree in eSports or not, it's a little bit like cannabis. You could study business and then figure out eSports. Right. But um, I think that's going to be a huge field. And, you know, frankly, with all our regular sports shut down, it doesn't do it any harm. Exactly. Um, yeah. So those are some emerging ones. Uh, closer to home, one of the ones we've seen crop up now persistently across both Google and our inquiry databases is Bible studies. Mm. Why Bible studies right now? I can't tell you, but um, it persistently shows up in the top 10 in terms of fastest growth. And that's recent. So, You're saying that's recent Yeah, in the recent. So, I mean, you know, armchair analysis, people are searching for meaning. That's what, that's where I would go. Um, uh -huh. Also, I think it skews to an interesting demographic. Oh. Uh, when we looked at it, it's the one, one uh, it's a program that's used to people over 60, actually. So now it's worth remembering we've got a whole group of people um, that are in, in themselves an opportunity uh, who actually aren't looking for career education. They're done with, they're not, maybe not be done with their career, but they're not worried about it anymore. It is what it is. It makes me think of, um, you know, again, at BayPath, our MFA program is burgeoning now to our, to our great surprise. Yep. Um, and, you know, in our, in our trying to figure this out, you know, we're, we're attracting people um, by and large who are uh, later career stage mm -hmm. folks for just this reason um, and being driven by this, you know, this emerging sense of wanting to, to write, to do something that's more meaningful. And it, it does strike me that there are probably a, a host of program opportunities like this that, that could tap into that human desire to matter, right? Right. Um, you so. could argue that a lot of us uh, spend our careers working on the hole in the donut. Yeah, the hole in the donut. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, when it comes to meaning, uh, to feeling, yeah. having a fulfilled life, you know, worrying about money is probably not, is probably the hole, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we do all need it. Right. And, and there are many of us who don't have enough to even have food security. I understand that. But at the end of the day, it's not going to make you feel fulfilled. Um, and it's very easy to forget that. So I, I think there's an opportunity there. Um, and it's a little bit offbeat. I would say when you're doing all this stuff, though, don't you got to be careful not to miss the broad side of the barn. Yeah. And, and the broad side of the barn is healthcare and IT. Yeah. Um, we are going to have more people that need healthcare in the future. Um, I, I think the coronavirus is only going to make that worse even after it passes because going to be all kinds of people with after effects that um, are going to have to be treated for the rest of their lives uh, to one degree or another. But um, 
you know, in any case, we still have an aging population that has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the on the tech side, there's just no end to what we can continue to create. Um, the need for things like cybersecurity will continue forever and grow. Um, we've got whole nations now trying to undermine the security of our, our data systems. So uh, there are some fairly big, obvious plays that are just that. They're big, they're obvious, and they're real. Yeah. Um, and missing those, I mean, you've had a, a wonderful um, time with your physical therapy program, as I recall. Um, well, we haven't we haven't launched physical therapy yet, but our our all of our other healthcare programs are right. are right on the you know it, the right it, in the zone. Yeah, so there's the, don't you, you don't want to miss those if you're not in those spaces. It's worth yeah. having a look and figuring out how you get into them. Yeah, and there seems to still be quite a bit of room in the market. Um, is what you're saying? So. Yeah, there's the because the end market continues to grow. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, students are more interested as well too. By the way, some of the um, uh, physical therapy. Um, I'm forgetting the other one. That's sort of a pair of that. Um, well, uh, OT occupational. Yeah, occupational therapy. These are fields that uh, you know students. I mean, I've heard kids in college talking about them. I'm like, I never even knew what that was when I was in college. So. Yeah, no, I know. And you know what? What else we're seeing uh, grow is public health. Not surprisingly, yeah. with all the attention. That it's, it's a very good point, and actually, it's been coming up in our numbers as well. Yep. Um, yep. So yeah, um, whether that will fade again, I don't know. Um, but well, let, let, let me ask you, um, uh, and this is a little bit of a drier question, but I, I, uh, I'm curious how you see demographic data playing into the work that you do with institutions. Cause you and I are both, you, we've read the same projections for the next five to seven years and it's pretty dismal. So let's just unpack that a little bit. <laughs> if you take a market and you zero in and you find the declining segment and then say the market's declining, you know, you really actually haven't done your work very well. Yes, the high school students are declining, but guess what? 40% of students for the last 15 years aren't high school students. They're, you know, adults, adult learners, what we used to call non-traditional, except that they are traditional now because they've been around for 20 years. So if you ignore 40% of the market and focus on the part that's shrinking, yes, indeed, you will find a bad answer. (laughs) Um, By the way, as a business, if you focus on a declining segment and don't look elsewhere when you realize that's happening, you're probably doomed, uh, right? You have to adapt. Uh, it's just, Indeed. that's the way the world works. So, you, you, you know, you got to go online. You got to figure out how to deal with the adult market. The adult market is not declining. All those students, you know, who uh, have graduated from high school 10 years ago when it was growing, they're adults now. And many of them need a college education. I don't remember the number, but we've got tens of millions of people in the U.S. who have part of a college education who need to finish it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if we if we if we foc- look in the rearview mirror and focus on yesterday's segments, we've got a problem. Um, if you look forward, there's plenty of opportunity in U.S. higher ed. And just look at these giants um, that have grown from nothing and continue to grow. Indeed. Uh, you know, yeah. and the problem is we're not they're taking share from everybody else. That's a severe problem. So I think one of the things in higher ed that you really have to watch out for is, you know, people say, well, you know, to compete in that space, I have to be a good marketer. And I'm not sure we're that good at it. My response to that is you better get good at it because they're coming after the rest of your students. Yeah. And but, um, it's, but you're also but you're also saying, Bob, and I want to I want to go back to this, our, our conversation at the beginning and your comments about quality and uh competing in this space is going to require more than just being a good marketer, but differentiating yourself in terms of the quality of how you are delivering 
particularly the online yep. program. And and I think the other part of it is making yourself known. Yeah. Um, so you know, you you could be very good in a very small way and nobody would know. And you know, so how do you do that? And how do you do that without spending millions of dollars on you know brand advertising? Right. I think we can, you know, look in higher ed and say brand advertising for almost everybody is not feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the, the returns aren't there. Even the guys I know in for profit um, can't afford it mm-hmm. uh, by and large, some exceptions. But so think about how you can get your brand out there. Uh, think about right now about Johns Hopkins. Um, the what, hits in their website are through the roof. Their name is in the press every day. What did they do? They did a study. They keep track of data. They do what, you know, think about that. That's a core part of being good at higher education. Is Right. They're providing the COVID, the most the most up-to-date COVID data. Right? Exactly. Right. So they found an issue and they yeah. and they made themselves, they, they really built, they've helped their brand using yeah. that. Um, think of Quinnipiac uh, with yeah. the presidential um, uh, surveys that they do. The poll, right. Right. poll, yeah. And so during that time, they're hot. Other schools do it through sports. Um, yeah. Kind of an expensive way to do it in most cases, but um, can be very effective. Uh, we see, especially you know, if you look at the um, Cinderella stories that kind of happen around the basketball tournament. Um, mm. Not so much this year, but normally, um, if a small school makes it through to the Sweet Sixteen, um, their brand search volumes go through the roof. Mm. So mm. there are a lot of paths to build that brand awareness. Yeah. Um, but as we talked about, I think the foundation is when the students show show up. They better get a good experience. Yeah. Yeah. So find that market gap that you are uniquely qualified to meet and then leverage the wazoo out of it in a really quality way. Is that what you're I I think that's right. And you know, if you think about modern marketing, a lot of it's content marketing. Yeah. And yet schools tend to keep a lot of content under a rock. Yeah. True. Um, you know, you could take your students' theses with permission. And put them on your website and celebrate everybody who got a summa and make sure it's out there for the world to see. Mm-hmm. Now, truth be known, nobody's going to read it. Um, but Google Spider will. And you'll come up higher in her search results. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are things like that that you can do that will, you know, help your institution, make your students feel good. Um, I don't see any, you know, I, I may be not seeing something around the corner, but I don't see how any harm can come of it in a sense. Um, and, uh, you know, and you can begin to push, move your, your image up. Mm. Um, so, so let me ask you my final question. This is our signature. This is the ringer question that we like to ask every guest. And it is this, and we've, we've kind of talked around this, but I'm going to ask you to sort of pull your thoughts together here in terms of what do you see ahead for higher ed that we all need to be paying more attention to what? What needs to be on the radar front and center and why? Well, the issue that, you know, I have a few of these that I I focus on from time to time, but I think this issue of quality of education is huge. Um, It's very difficult to define. So that's the first step for a school, I think. Um, And then you've actually got to figure out how to track it um, on a regular basis. And of course, it's not good enough to track it. You actually have to figure out how to fix the things that aren't, um, working as well as you would like. And remember, if you think about quality, uh, it's not that anything is ever going to be perfect. So it's a, it's something that will be attended to. Hopefully you'll be improving over time. And uh, it's, it's a never ending game of improvement. So 
that commitment to the to uh, the definition and measurement and achievement of high quality education, I think, is really uh, important, especially after this brutal transition to online, where there's probably a lot of stuff that's actually not very good. Um, so I would I would say that's that's number one. We do have a, a fundamental problem in higher ed around the economics of higher education. Um, we've got to corral it. We have some stuff that you can do about it, but um, we can't continue to have higher ed grow faster than inflation, you know, indefinitely. Um, we can't continue to have the administrative costs grow faster than the educational costs, um, which has been the case for 20 years. Um, and, you know, I think we've got to get uh, the summer camp element of college and spending, you know, back under control, you know, the climbing wall and that sort of thing. I, yeah. I know everybody brings it up and most colleges don't have one. Um, so it's a bit of a fake issue, but on the other hand, um, you know, education used to be sort of a monastic concept and it was about, um, some level of, uh, sacrifice and focus on the academic portion wouldn't, you know, we're not going to become monks, but it wouldn't hurt, uh, to head back that direction and to really celebrate learning on campus, not, you know, wins in sports events. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, again, I don't want to castigate every campus, but I think um, as you look at our field and programs and, and courses, uh, really understanding the economics of your programs and courses and um, looking through in particular your course portfolio and trimming out the, the courses that are systematically running under their capacity and costing you too much um, will only strengthen the core and uh, reduce your cost at the same time. So I think that's getting, so the two things, one is make it good. And the second is uh, get it a little leaner than it is today so we can manage the cost better and make it more accessible in the future. Because the funding sources are drying up. You know, state governments for the next few years are not gonna have any money. Um, That's gonna hit higher ed. Uh, People are gonna be more under stress financially. Um, And, you know, unless the federal government steps in uh, there's going to be a huge financial shortfall. And even if there isn't, just as responsible uh, institutions, we've got to get this one done and, mm-hmm. and find a way to run uh, higher ed um, at or below the inflation rate. A very wise uh, word to end on. So, Bob, thank you so, so very much for your time, for your wisdom. Our conversations are also are always very wide ranging, and this was this was no exception. So, thank you, thank you very much for uh, your insights and expertise. You're welcome, Melissa. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Solson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with inspiring leader, innovator, and community college president, Dr. Valerie Roberson. As president of Boston-based Roxbury Community College since 2013, Dr. Roberson has transformed the institution on every level. 
earning her and her institution such prestigious recognition as the Leventhal Award and the Governor's Leading by Example Award. You will be inspired by Dr. Roberson's leadership journey and her insights about what it takes to lead change, especially when things are tough and resources are in short supply. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong. I'm Melissa Moore-Solson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Amanda Emmett. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with historian and futurist, Dr. David J. Staley. In his role as history professor and director of the Humanities Institute at The Ohio State University, where he also leads the Forum on the University, Dr. Staley spends a good deal of time thinking about the future of higher education. His latest book, Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, published in 2019 by the Johns Hopkins Press, has taken the higher ed world by storm, and for good reason. Staley is one of a handful of individuals who in 2018 forecast the current global pandemic and his insights about the future have largely been on target. When it comes to higher ed, Staley suggests that the notion of innovation has become somewhat of a cliche and that our discussions about higher ed innovation are rarely expansive or imaginative enough. He believes that the future belongs to those institutions that possess the vision and the courage to step out from the crowd and pursue a strategically differentiated mission. During our conversation, he shares some valuable insights for how to do just that. Subscribe now to make sure you do not miss out on this inspiring and compelling conversation with historian and higher ed futurist, David Staley. And as a closing note, we are winding down now on season one of Ingenious You and beginning to plan for season two. If there is someone you would like to hear from in season two, or if you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, please reach out. We would love to incorporate your ideas into our next season of conversation. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Be well and stay strong.